AA Beyond Belief is a podcast by, for, and about people who have found a secular path to sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. Continuing with our Wednesday Secular Speaker Series, today we present to you Lisa Kay, who spoke at the Kansas City Secular AA Speaker Meeting on December 8, 2018. Lisa, a Korean adoptee, shares her experience with adoption and how that impacted her alcoholism and recovery. Hi, thank you. My name's Lisa. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Lisa. It's really good to be here tonight. Um, I've shared my story a lot at different meetings, so I apologize if you've heard parts before. Also, um, I went to an all-day training today, so I'm a little brain dead. So I I made notes, and I may jump around a a little bit. I can't really do it chronologically, I don't think. (laughs) So anyway, I was thinking about uh, when I was new in sobriety, I went to a lot of speaker meetings, and in traditional AA, a lot of times from the the podium, they will say, my name is so-and-so and and my sobriety date. So I thought I'd do that. So my sobriety date is November 19th, 2010. I always start kind of like with a little joke. Uh, I was raised a poor white girl. (laughs) I happen to be a Korean adoptee. Um, (laughs) I know it's kind of uh, comical. So I was born in uh, Korea in 1963, and I was adopted when I was two years old in 1965. When I came to uh, the States, my mom was already pregnant with my brother, so she had four kids after me, but I'm the only one who was adopted. I grew up in Northern California. My parents were divorced when I was 11, so it was a pretty topsy-turvy childhood, to say the least. Uh, We moved around a lot, and uh, actually just recently I counted how many schools I went to by age or by 12th grade, and it was something like 12 or 13 schools. There was a lot of, uh, aside from the financial uh, hardship, you know, like we were on welfare and, you know, we we lived on the wrong side of the tracks, and uh, there was a lot of shame about that because I remember just going to school and, you know, my mom, when her pants would get too short, she'd, she'd go to the, the fabric store and you get that, uh, that border thing and, and sew it to the bottom of our, our pants. So I just remember looking really funny. And, you know, we shopped at thrift stores. I still do. You know, I think it's a great deal. Some of my best clothing's from the stores. But anyway, um, so basically, you know, when I first came to AA, they used to talk about being uncomfortable in your skin. And I truly, literally and figuratively was uncomfortable in my skin from a very early age. I remember, uh, even though we were in, uh, in a pretty diverse neighborhood, like, you know, the wrong side of the tracks, <laughs> meaning there were people of color, I didn't fit in with those those uh, other people, all the, those other non-white kids, and even Asian kids in my school because, um, and it's hard to explain this, you know, even as an adult. Culturally, I wasn't Asian. <laughs> I was. I said that, you know, I was trapped in this Asian body, and if people only knew who the hell I was, and so my whole life I was explaining, I'm Korean, but you know. <laughs> 
And um, even to this day, you know, when I say that I'm adopted, people still assume that my parents are Asian. Like, no, I grew up in a white world. (laughs) So anyway, that had a lot of uh, uh, problems for me growing up because not only was I ashamed of how I looked, you know, as a little kid, and and many other adoptees share this, this same thing, is that I just wanted to fit in. I wanted blonde hair and blue eyes. I wanted to be tall and blonde and and uh, not asked all these questions like, where did you come from? And, you know, why do you speak English so well? And, you know, it's just, and to even, you know, I'm 55 and I my, my citizenship is still in question. You know, how long have you been here? So anyway, that's another subject. <laughs> so growing up, it was the 70s, and I was telling John before the meeting, we were, this is like 1974, I was about 12, 11, 12, we were passing around the joint. There was, my mom remarried, it was a big old party, you know, people were coming and going. Um, I had ever, there was booze and drugs, and I had every opportunity as a kid to become, you know, addicted to something. But I resisted. I mean, I finally, you know, smoked some pot and stuff, but I don't know. I just, it was just so chaotic, and I was just trying to, I remember being uh, left with my four younger brothers and sisters, and there was just constant screaming and yelling, and everybody beating the shit out of each other. And I don't know if it's, you know, sometimes you wonder, is it genetic? Because that is not my nature. I'm very quiet. I was a very quiet, reserved, you know, I tried to get away from that, that it was just emotional upset all the time. I remember locking myself in the bedroom to get away from them. I would, I would be stuck to take care of them when my mom was at school or something. And I just didn't socialize with other kids in high school. I was so fearful. I had like, now it would be called social anxiety. It was so uh, stressful to walk down the hallway in high school. I didn't have any friends. I didn't go to dances. I just hid myself because I was so ashamed. But, you know, I just felt so ugly. Anyway, so fast forward, I went to, out of high school, I went to the junior college for two years. And then in 1983, I went, of all places, to the pot capital of the world, Humboldt State, Northern California. Needless to say, I was 20 years old. I let loose. That was my year of uh, binge drinking, promiscuity, uh, staggering home. I lived in the dorm, staggering home in the middle of the night. I mean, I could have been killed or raped. I mean, yeah, it was a college town, but the things that I did in in blacks, which I didn't even know what a blackout was until I came to A. And then the following year, somewhere in there, uh, my mom migrated north. She divorced my stepfather. They lost the house to foreclosure. The kids got, the younger kids all got farmed out, some to the East Coast. And I was living in a tent in Northern California in a campground with my mother and two two little dogs. And she was trying to find work. So that was my life in like about 1984, 85, somewhere in there. And fortunately, she did get a job. She moved north, even farther north to Oregon. And I went back to Arcata because I just, not to go to school, but just to get away from, you know, the whole family dynamic. And uh, lo and behold, I got pregnant with my son. And it was just this person I was dating. There was nothing, you know, he was 20 and I was 21. And I was like, holy shit, I'm pregnant. You know, I thought that was the end of my life. It was like the most scary day of my life that I was pregnant. And also at 21, I had the mentality of like 16 year olds doing crazy. So uh, 
because I think of my adoption issues and, and all the chaos I grew up in, um, first of all, I was so far along in the pregnancy, there was no way I, I was past the first trimester. I was in such denial about me being pregnant. I, um, abortion was out of the question. The person I was dating said, he was like, well, we'll just give it up for adoption. Nope, not giving it. I'm going to have the baby. So anyway, because Kurt, my ex-husband, is from a good family, and they, um, he, he did right by me, and we, we moved in together. He was a junior in college. I worked in restaurants. Derek was born in February 86. Um, life was good. I was away from my crazy family. I had some peace. I had my son, I, you know, being pregnant was like the most incredible, wonderful experience. And we were dirt poor. I mean, I was working in restaurants. Kurt had like a $500 a month stipend. I don't even know how we lived, but I, it was like the happiest time of my life. You know, I was like complete and I had my son and, you know, being pregnant, you know, that was the first time I thought about my own adoption. Like, oh shit, some, some woman carried me. And um, I always get emotional when I say that. Um, so let's see. So Kurt finished his BA. Uh, we went out for the master's degree. We moved in 1988 to Montana, of all places. So we're in this really, like, liberal Northern California, you know, granola, really uh, super laid-back community. And we moved to conservative Montana. And I remember our friends at the time saying, aren't you concerned about going out there as a mixed-race couple? And I just was like, what? <laughs> you know, because that I had no, ra even then, I had no racial consciousness about, about you know, not being white. I, you know, even though I looked in the mirror and I saw how I looked, I had no pride. I didn't like how I looked, so I just kind of blocked it out. Okay, so let's see. We were in Montana for two years. Then we went back to Oregon State for the PhD. And uh, I can look back now, you know, after I got sober and I, when I looked at the timeline, I discovered around age 30, I started like breaking out of that, that really sh uh, quiet shell and just kind of going along with everything. And I came out in a big way. <laughs> I left my husband for a woman. I discovered lesbians, <laughs> uh, feminism. I was up in arms. I was out at protests. I was, you know, reading books and I was just, I was, you know, angry. And so anyway, I, I met my girlfriend, Cheryl, and she was also at Oregon or in, she had just come up from Berkeley. So ironically, I left my husband when he was just finishing his PhD. Cheryl, my girlfriend, had a PhD in chemical engineering from Berkeley. Um, we started dating. We didn't move in together right away. That year that I, that I left, uh, my ex-husband, he was going to Sweden for a postdoc. And, uh, Derek, who was eight years old, my son, he went with, with Kurt because on my clerical salary, there was no way that I could, that I could support him. And I wasn't living with Cheryl yet. And that, in 1995, that was like he died. I was in mourning that year. That was like the worst, worst year of my life. It was, it was just horrible. And that is when my drinking started. So with my ex-husband, there'd be like a six-pack in the, in the fridge on the weekends, and we'd drink some beer or whatever. But it, alcohol, it just wasn't something that I thought about. But once Cheryl and I were together, everything that we did, there was alcohol, you know. And uh, you know how, I don't know, in the early 
AA for me, um, we would say things like, you can never deem another person alcoholic, but she sure as hell drank alcoholically, and I couldn't keep up with that. So as the relationship progressed, she ended up being really domineering. And, and you know, I don't like being told what to do, and I don't like, uh, yeah, I don't want to be under anybody's thumb, and it, it just wasn't working out. And so the more, the more unhappy I was, the more I drank. And she traveled on business, and I would be alone in the house, and I have a lot of fears, you know, from childhood, like, like boogeyman and scared and covering up the windows at night. And so when she was gone, I would drink to fall asleep because I was so fearful about being alone in the house. And I think that that's, you know, I was trying to think, when did, when did drinking become a problem? When did I recognize, oh, crap, I, I think I have a problem. And it was, I think, around maybe 2000, between, yeah, 98 and 2000, that I realized I started hiding my drinking from her. You know, even though, you know, she'd drink in the evenings and go to bed, I'd still be up drinking. And then I was starting to hide it in the closet, you know, and and I think that's when I first started feeling some shame on my drinking. So let's see, 2003, uh, or I'm sorry, 97, we moved to San Diego. She got a job transfer from Oregon to San Diego. And then in 2003 is when she went, uh, uh, sorry, overseas to Singapore for her job. And that was my out. So Looking back on my ex-husband, when he went to Sweden, that was my out. And then when Cheryl went to Singapore, that was my out. You know, I was a chicken shit. I, I didn't, I couldn't, you know, I didn't know how else to, to break up. Um, so anyway, once she was in Singapore, the plan was that Derek would finish his senior year in high school and then I would join her. Well, of course, that's the opportunity I took to leave the relationship. And then by 2005, when we officially split and I moved out of the house, that's when my drinking, uh, picked up because you know how they say then I could drink how I wanted. And no surprise, around year seven with Cheryl, I realized, oh crap, I'm still attracted to men. Oh my God. You know? And, uh, so after Cheryl and I split, I started dating men again. And no surprise, I ended up with alcoholic men. <laughs> uh, and they always drank more than I did. So I say there were two alcoholic men that I dated. The second one died. And that's what brought me back to, to the rooms. Or that's what, uh, brought me to my knees. And I thought, I didn't know that I didn't, I was so ignorant about, uh, drinking. I didn't even know that a blackout was when you lost, or I thought it was when you lost consciousness. I didn't even know that you could still be up doing things. So when Dave died in, in 2010, that's when I just thought I got to do something about my own drinking because I didn't want to look at my drinking. I thought I was a functional drunk. I, I still made it to work every day. Um, I had to live with that shame and that secrecy of like, oh God, are those people at work really knew what I was doing every, you know, passing out. So when I came back in 2007, I tried to get sober as a result of that first alcoholic, but I only managed to stay stay dry for six months because I only went to a few meetings. I didn't listen to things. I didn't, I heard the God stuff and I was like, uh-uh. So I thought I can do it myself. I just thought it was just sheer willpower. So in 2010, when I came crawling back, that's when I was, you know, that the, all those sayings in the beginning about being willing. I set aside my preconceived notions. I said, 
well, I don't want to end up like Dave. <laughs> so um, I'm going to see what how how this is done. And you know, like when you first stop drinking, you just can't even imagine what it would be. What's what are you going to do with yourself? And so I remember coming home from or not even coming home from work, but sitting in my apartment at night, looking at the meeting schedule, going, I got to go to a meeting. I got to do something because. I couldn't sit in that apartment because that's that was my trigger. That's where I drank. Um, so fortunately, but I, I white knuckled it through the holidays, and then finally in January I went to back to to the meetings, and I, I found a friend of me, and I just I say I jumped in whole hog. I just did. I was just the good little AA. I got involved in everything. I had like five or six service commitments. And again, I can see how, you know, I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to be accepted and I wanted to be part of the, part of the group. And I was still stumbling over this God stuff and I, I would share in meetings and it's no joke. I would say, okay, I don't believe in God, but I, I'm sure there's a book out there. So I got on Amazon.com and, and I was just trying to find you know, I really want to be part of this AA stuff. And if I could just learn this thing about God, I'm sure there's a way that I can, you know, make it work for myself. And that lasted a couple of years. And, and I, you know, when I went to meetings and I would be involved in, you know, all these uh, service commitments and go to conventions and stuff, I can look back now and see how I just, you speak to the audience that you're with and you use all that AA speak and you say, oh, I know there's something out there and I know that, you know, my higher power is helping me and, and maybe, you know, looking back, that's kind of what I needed and, and I needed to sort of be indoctrinated because I don't think that if I had not done all those things, I probably would have just strayed again. And so if, for anybody who's new, I would say, even if it's not sitting right with you, stay close to those those people in the meetings, because I believe that it's the fellowship and it's being connected to another alcoholic that keeps us keeps us sober. You know, it's, it's that willingness. So I guess what what changed for me, or what kept me coming back uh, in the beginning was that I did, I, you know, I went through my steps and, and for me that was a good thing because I, I went and I looked at my behaviors and I saw patterns and the way that I treated people and that fear of economic insecurity, which still plagues me. <laughs> But I could, I could take a step back and, and look at myself. And also I blamed myself early on for Dave's death, you know, because I was so cruel to him, you know, and I pushed him away. My last text message to him was that you're going to be dead in a gutter. And he was dead 11, like 10 or 11 days later. You know, I carried that with me for my first six month variety. I have like such a, a crazy story because I think sometimes I think, I um, came from such humble beginnings. You know, I was an orphan in Korea. I could have died. I used to say that growing up. I could have died in Korea by some miracle. Here I am. And, you know, I also say that, you know, that I think it's Judy Collins, that song, uh, Both Sides Now. I have literally lived both sides. When I was with Cheryl, we, you know, we traveled the world. I've been to, like, most of the capitals in, in the world and all this crazy stuff. And also on the other side, I've known poverty. I've lived in a tent, you know. I still to this day, it's like hand-to-mouth existence, you know. But through it all, 
I don't know. I just feel like there's some, there's some uh, drive in me to survive. <laughs> I'm like a cat. I always land, I land on my feet, you know. It's, cra- it's crazy. Here I am in Kansas City, you know. People are like, where in the hell is she now? I have moved so many times. I recently applied for this postal job. I had to fill out this application. I had to list p- all the places I lived and worked for the last five or seven years. It was a nightmare. I move so many times. So I guess what I'm doing now, I, you know, they say uh, what happened, what what was it like, what happened, and what I'm doing now, something like that. I, I believe very much in uh, service, and service can be anything. It can be, you know, doing things that are uncomfortable. When I was first sober, I used to do this thing called H&I. They call it H&I in California, hospitals and institutions. It was going in and sitting in a room like this and sharing my story with complete strangers. Scared the shit out of me. I'd be like shaking. But after I did that, it, it helped so much, you know, just uh, outside of your comfort zone and and remembering and that's another thing is that I never forget I never forget forget how it felt sitting in my apartment at night drinking myself to sleep and that shame and you know I don't want to feel that again and I've had I've I've never come close to drinking but I've had a lot of rough times in sobriety emotional you know upheavals and that sort of thing I moved to New York in 2016 from San Diego to help my mom big mistake <laughs> my mom is still abusive <laughs> You know, it's, and it, I realized, you know, at 55, I'm still looking for her approval. I'm still looking for her to love me, you know, to, to say a kind word. And it's not coming, you know. It's, it's kind of, you know, the things that, that, uh, we go through. I want to say I, I am so, so grateful for, uh, this group, for the We Agnostics group and to John and for the podcast and, uh, how much uh, that was so pivotal for me. A couple years sober, you know, I realized that the traditional meetings weren't doing it for me and that I felt that I wasn't sharing my truth. And I think that that's another thing that's very, very important is like when we start hiding things that we are not truthful about, that's the things that, that, uh, that make us, that could lead us to drink or to do something destructive. And I think the fact that we can come to these rooms and we can really share what's on our heart and we don't have to be um we don't have to be careful about which you know pick our words or and I did that so much I remember toward the tail end of uh, my time in San Diego there were so many things that I I just felt I couldn't share in those meetings and that's you know what's the point <laughs> when you can't you can't be honest I I had a couple quotes um you know how, and I still do this, when you think that the circumstances or that your environment or all these things around you, if these things would just change, then I'll be happy. And there's this quote I had on my desk many years ago. It's from Thoreau, and it's uh, basically a paraphrase that things don't change, we do. And and I think that that's so true because, and that also kind of goes in with uh, our perspective is, is always changing. You know, when you were five months sober, you saw things a certain way. When you were five years sober, you know, as you get older, I think that's another thing is like that humility and the humbleness. I think I always sort of had that. I was, I've never been uh, a boastful or... Uh, 
arrogant person, but I think that getting older, it makes you look at your life and your body and, and how do you want to uh, spend the rest of your life and to take care of yourself and to do the best things that you can and to, be, to have an impact on the people around you and to make those people happy and... Uh, yeah, it's like, you know, that when you give that, it comes back to you. And I think that when people hold back, you know, and they're just like, I can see that. And it's really, really heartbreaking with my mom. She's just bottled up all this anger and it's just manifested in her body and she's just so angry. And yeah, I don't want to die. I don't want to die like that. <laughs> I don't want to go out. I'll end with this quote. Um, I like this. I had this bookmark many years. It's somewhere I, I've lost it, but it basically says, uh, the challenge is to be yourself in a world that's trying to make you like everyone else. And the way that I interpret that for myself is that I spent my whole life trying to prove to people that this is not me. <laughs> this body is not me. What you see, and I I see people who, uh, you know, like about the prestige and, and pretension and wealth and that somehow that, that is a reflection of who you are as a person. And I just, I just don't, uh, I don't respect that. I think that I, I want to be seen, you know, when I'm gone, they'll say, yeah, she was a real goofy person, but she had a good heart or, you know, she tried her best or, you know, she, she, uh, gave of herself you know, maybe not monetarily, <laughs> but, you know, that she, uh, she brought joy to other people. Um, I guess that's, that's all I have. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. And that's another episode of AA Beyond Belief. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to help out our site and podcast, there's a couple of things you can do. First of all, go over to iTunes and leave us a review, hopefully a favorable one. You can also help out financially with either a recurring or one-time contribution. You can do that by setting up small recurring donations at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash aabeyondbelief or through PayPal at paypal.me slash aabeyondbelief. And you can always visit our site aabeyondbelief.org and click on the donate button. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast.